Uh, this morning, we're going to be in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11 and going through verse 22. Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. It reads, So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, ex excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh he made of no effect the law, consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might uh, reconcile both the God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole building, being put together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Lord, we are thankful this morning that we have your word. We're also thankful, Lord, that your word says the same truths in different ways, so that if we don't get it one way, we get it in another way. Lord, that we can understand your gospel through so many different lenses, Lord, so many different pictures and illustrations. Lord, you've made it abundantly clear to us just how much you love us, and you show that love um, through explaining the gospel in so many different ways. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that you would help us to treasure your saving grace. That as we see yet another picture of how you have saved us, of what it looks like to be reconciled back to you, Lord, that we would treasure that, Lord, that we would be changed by that, or that you would use it to shape us and mold us so that we can reflect your glory more and more out into the world and so that we can enjoy you all the more. So, Lord, I, I pray, Spirit, work through me to shape us how we need to be shaped, Lord, to change us how we need to be changed, Lord, to, to, to help us to be able to get rid of the things that we need to get rid of. Lord, ultimately, Lord, I ask that you help us to enjoy you, to treasure you all the more through your word. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. You guys might have heard the song, We're Going on a Bear Hunt. It's a classic, classic kid song. Uh, I sing it a lot growing up. Essentially, uh, the song goes, you and whoever you are singing with are looking for bears. I don't know why. Honestly, it doesn't sound like a great idea, but it's the concept of the, of the song. And in the song, you keep coming upon obstacle after obstacle. Maybe it's a mountain, tall grass, or a river, something like that. And as you keep coming to each obstacle, you repeat the same phrase. We can't go under it, we can't go over it, 
we can't go around it, we'll have to go through it. It's a catchy song, and it's a good reminder in life that there are some things that you can't avoid. No matter what, you just have to face those problems head on. So why do I tell you about this kid's song? Well, last week, Paul explained the gospel through understanding how we who were dead have been made alive. That's the picture that we have of us walking out of the tomb and being made alive through Christ. And now, today, in this passage, he uses a spatial understanding, being far and being near to explain what Christ has done for us. There were obstacles in the way. We were far away, and Christ has gone through them for us that we might be brought near. And so today's main idea is this. I'm sorry, I don't, I don't have slides this morning, so I'll repeat it a couple times for you guys. The main idea is this. Though we were once separated from God and his people, we are now joined together to be a display of God's presence and glory. I'll say that again. Though we were once separated from God and his people, we are now joined together to be a display of God's presence and glory. And so first, we're going to see that we were far off. Then we're going to see how Jesus has brought us near. And then we're going to see how we remain near, what it looks like to be near to God and his people. And so first, we were far off in verses 11 through 12. Right up front, Paul gives a call for us to remember our former condition. Right, verse 11, So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncir- uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. The first thing that Paul says is, So then, remember. In other words, because of what Paul has just said, that you were dead and that you've been brought back to life, and that you are now reigning and ruling with Christ as you live out the good works that God has prepared for you, Remember who you were before that. Remembering is a powerful thing. We just spent time as a country last week remembering 9-11. Right? The slogan is never forget. We remember those who lost their lives on that terrible, tragic day. Each year we often spend time remembering what happened during the previous year when the new year comes. We reflect on the goals that we set and whether we accomplished those or not the highs and lows of each year. Even Facebook has an on-this-day feature, which is to recall memories that have happened, to remember. And the Bible also has other times where people are called to remember. Israel, after they walk through the Jordan River and the Lord parts it for them, they stack stones as a reminder, a physical reminder that God came through for them. Israel celebrated Passover and continues to celebrate Passover each year to remember how God rescued them from Egypt. And now Paul calls us to remember. As we reflect on the goodness of God, as he gives us new life, we are called to remember who we were before, which kind of seems odd. That doesn't sound like a fun thing to do. Christ has redeemed us. Why would we want to spend any time dwelling on who we were before? It's because if we are to have any continuing joy in who Christ is and what he's accomplished for us, we must continue to remember who we were before. Just like the heights of the Blue Ridge Mountains about an hour and a half away from here, 
are accentuated by the depths of the Shenandoah Valley. So we can only continue to understand the heights of God's love when we understand just how far down we were in our sins. And so Paul calls the Ephesians to remember who they were before. Now, he says some things about circumcision. Uh, essentially, just as a brief caveat, he's basically just saying, hey, you have a physical reminder that you were outside of the people of God. All of Israel, uh, their men were circumcised as a sign that they were part of Israel. And so the Ephesians would not have that because they, didn't, they weren't part of Israel. And so he's just saying, hey, remember, you have a physical sign on yourself to remind you that you are not or were not part of God's people. And so, with that aside, Paul calls us to remember three things about who we were before Christ. Three things about who we were before Christ. They're all far from. First is, we're far, we were far from God's community. That's what's going on when we read that as, as Gentiles, we were excluded from the citizenship of Israel. Paul's point here is that we are excluded from the community and the identity that is centered around God and worshiping Him. And at first, that, that may not mean much to you. After all, we each find ourselves in different communities. However, each and every community that we join or that we are a part of has some prerequisite for being part of it or for joining it. Think about it. I'll, I'll give you a few examples. Think about your friends or those that you often find yourself hanging around. We typically gather around something that we have in common. Maybe you're in the military. Odds are most of your friends are probably in the military. They have a similar life experience, similar career, and know what it's like to, to live a military lifestyle as you move from place to place. Maybe uh, most of your friends are your friends because you're in, a, in the same family situation or similar family situation. Your kids are the same age and you find yourself at the same sports games, same dance classes, or various other activities. Maybe most of your friends share the same interests or hobbies with you. Maybe you like the same sports teams, or play the same video games, or go hunting and fishing together, read the same books, whatever that may be. Each and every one of these are real things that we gather around, with which we can center our community around. And each one of these things is good. They're not, they're not bad things. But each of them have a prerequisite attached to them. And they require you to keep up with that prerequisite. If you have the same career, if your friends all have the same career, then changing careers can cause you to fade out of that community. If you're in the same family situation, any changes to your family situation can put you out of the realm that places you within that community. If your friends share your interests and hobbies, a change in interests or hobbies can cause you to fade out of that community as well. What we each need, though we find ourselves in various communities, we each need something deeper. We need something that leads to a common community even as life throws changes our way. Even as we change our interests and hobbies, even as our children grow up and leave the house, even as our careers change, we need something that is sustainable as life changes and goes deeper than surface level changes. And that's what Israel was. That's what Paul is getting at here with the citizenship of Israel. It was a group of people, a nation that was centered around God and the worship of him. It was a group of people who deferred in family situations, 
socioeconomic status, careers and hobbies and interests. Each and every Israelite belonged to Israel, to a community that remained even as life changed. They were a people whose sole identity was being the people of God and who lived a deeply communal life out of that fact. They were a people who staked their identity in the one that never changes or fades away. They centered their identity and their community on God. So by us being outside of this community, we're forced to stake our identity in whatever the world provides, which could only go surface level. Before Christ, outside of Christ, we can only stake our identity in things that fade and pass away. And so our communities change and they fade. Without Christ, we're on the outside looking into the community that remains the same, that is ever-present and is sustainable. And so we work far from God's people, from God's community. It's the first thing that Paul says we're far, far from. Second, we were far from God's covenants. Far from God's covenants. We see that the next thing is that we were foreigners to the covenants of promise. What is a covenant? J.I. Packer defines a covenant as a solemn agreement that binds the parties to each other in a permanent, defined relationship with specific promises, claims, and obligations on both sides. So essentially, it binds two people together with the only out being death. And there are multiple covenants throughout the Old Testament. A covenant with Noah, a covenant with Abraham, with Moses, and with David. And in each of these covenants, we find one key difference between a covenant with God and a contract. We don't, our, our society doesn't really revolve around covenants. Our society revolves around contracts. But the difference is, is that if I sign a contract today and I break it, both parties are out of the contract. Now, there are real ramifications for breaking a contract, but once the contract is broken, the party who's on the other side of it is now released from the contract as well. However, when we read each of the covenants that God formed with Israel, we find a common thread. They are all initiated by God and continue to be held by God, even as Israel falls short time and time again. God doesn't see Israel breaking the covenant as a means of him getting out. Like, ah, I'm gone, I'm, I'm out, I'm out, I'm done. Instead, he continues to hold fast. And we also see that each of these covenants holds one or more promises attached to them, which is why Paul refers to them as covenants a promise. Each of them carry forth a promise that God will bless his people, will bless Israel. And if you read throughout the history of Israel, just, just go and pick up your Old Testament, flip to 1 Kings or 2 Kings, you'll see time and time again, it's like a roller coaster over and over, where things turn for the worse for Israel because of their own actions, not by happenstance, because they directly did something that led to them falling. They end up enslaved to nation upon nation, and their kingdom is demolished time and time again. However, the common thread throughout all of this is that God will come through on his promise to redeem and rescue his people. He will bring them back to himself. I mean, imagine that. Every time that you fall, knowing that you're constantly spitting in this, in this God's face, 
And he's still going to take you back time and time again and promise you something better for the future. And this, this promise was physically represented by the temple that was in the center of Jerusalem, in the center of the city. It was first built by Solomon thousands of years before Jesus, and it represented the presence of God with his people. And was a reminder that God continued to love Israel and was a reminder that they were in a covenant with him and that he would come through on his promises. And as, as you might know, the temple was built in layers. Right? As you went deeper and deeper into the temple, fewer and fewer people were allowed in. Now, inside the heart of the temple, at the very center of it, was a room known as the Holy of Holies, where the direct presence of God existed, dwelt. And only the high priest, one guy who represented all of Israel, could enter this room, and he could only do so once a year. And now, the temple was destroyed and rebuilt multiple times. Uh, we read about it in Nehemiah. Uh, we read about it all throughout uh, the course of the Bible. By the time of Paul, the, the temple was made up of these many layers and a few courtyards outside. Now, the outermost courtyard, so literally like the first door in, we're not even under shelter at this point. We're still in a courtyard. There's a place farthest from the Holy of Holies was the Court of the Gentiles. It was named as such because it was the only part of the temple in which Gentiles could enter. It didn't matter if you worshiped God, if you believed in God, you were only allowed in this outside courtyard. I mean, think about it. Think about if you wanted to visit someone, say, say you loved, you had a dearly loved relative, and you wanted to visit them at their house. And they're sitting inside of their bedroom, and multiple people are making their way to visit them. But this person is, is just very particular, and so only certain people could come in and visit them. And so only the, only the man's wife could go into his bedroom. Others could go into the living room, others into the kitchen. But you, you were only allowed on the sidewalk that passed by the house. You would feel very much on the outside looking in, right? Well, that was the case with the Gentiles. They were so far outside of the covenant that God had with his people that they couldn't even enter into the building which signified this promise. They weren't even allowed inside the temple to worship God. They had to do so from the most outer courtyard. They were left outside of the promise looking in. And that's that was our state. Though we may not have a temple in which we go to and have a physical representation of this, as people separated from God without Christ, there's no promise for us to lean on and no covenant for us to enjoy. There is no promise of blessing awaiting us in the future. If, if we continue to fail outside of Christ, there's no promise that God will come through for us. And that leads us to the, to the third thing, which is that we are far from hope. We're far from God's hope. So Paul says when he says that we are without hope and without God in the world. With no promise that there is something better waiting. We are left hopeless. And think about it. Without this hope based on the promises of God, we have nothing to hold on to when life spirals downward. You may find yourself trusting in money, in reputation, stability, career, health, in being needed, or in doing the right thing at all times. But you'll soon find that as you trust these things, they make promises that they can't come through on. The economy crashes. 
Your reputation can be smeared in a second with social media. Stability can be taken away in a moment. You can be fired from your job. Your health can fail just like that. Those that needed you no longer do. And doing the right thing for the sake of making yourself feel better leaves you empty and tired. These things make promises that they cannot come through on. And when these things let you down, you're left with the same feeling that the writer of Ecclesiastes has. Life is but a vapor. It's meaningless. We try to grab and find something solid to hold on to, but it all, just like smoke, looks solid but isn't. There's nothing stable to which we can grab. And because of this, we're faced with the reality that without God, without something outside of the world that is eternal and unchanging, and without the promises from this very God that he will come through for us, we're left without hope. We're left without a future. And that's the outlook that Paul has for the Ephesians and for us without Christ. Though we may, come fa- though we may not come face to face with Israel like the Ephesians did, we are also, apart from Christ, we are also far from the community of God. And outside of the promises of God that lead to hope. That's what Paul calls us to remember. He calls us to remember our hopelessness in being on the outside. That is who we were before Christ. And so where do we go from here? Well, we see second that Christ brings us near. So again, there's a spatial understanding that Paul is is giving us here. We were far off on the outside looking in, and now Christ brings us near. Look at verse 13. It says, You who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we see the mode which brings us near. We see what it is that brings us near. It's the blood of Christ. And Paul is getting at a new reality. I remember last week, he talked about Christ making us, de- or making us alive though we were dead, and now he's using proximity, bringing us in close. You who were far away, that is, we who were far in all that we talked about before, we were outside the citizenship of Israel, outside the promises, left to experience hopelessness. Those same people, us, have been brought near to God. And think about what it means to be near someone. Think about a loved one. It's a lonely thing to be far off, to be away. I mean, many of you know exactly what that's like as your spouses deploy or have to go somewhere else for training. But to be sitting next to someone you love, to feel their leg bump into yours, even just to hear them breathing and feel their warmth, it's a comforting thing. And that's a new reality that we have with one another. We've been brought near to God. We, who were unable to access most of the temple, we were left on the outside, on the outer courtyard, have now been brought near to the one who dwelt there. We've been brought near to the one who created life, who sustains the world, and who rules over all that we know. We've been brought near the one who gives new life and fresh breath to those who respond to his call. No longer see on the other side of the mountain range as we look and can find no way to go around, go under, go over, or even go through. Instead, God is near. Near for us to talk to, 
near for us to love, near for us to feel. And how is that? It's by Christ's blood. You see, the only thing that was keeping us apart from God was our inability to live up to the law of God. No one could. That's why Israel continued to sacrifice animals. We continued to fall short, and so Israel had to sacrifice animals to appease the wrath of God that should have come for them instead. And remember when I said earlier that the only way out of a covenant is through death? Well, our covenant was between God and all of humanity, or between God and Israel. And so Christ came to live as a human and represented the entire human race, all of humanity, as he lived out the law of God perfectly. He represented us before God so that all of the punishment that we deserved could be placed upon him instead of us. And so in dying, he both appeased God's wrath and also represented the death of one party within the covenant. He fulfilled the covenant all the way to death. And thus humanity was released from the old covenant, and a new covenant could be created with God and man. Well, so that's exactly what Christ did. He's created a new covenant, which is both eternal and internal. Before God gave his people a set of laws and regulations by which the people of God were to live. It carried with it how to live individually, how to live with each other, and live with those outside. But now Christ has secured a covenant that changes us internally. The Spirit of God comes to dwell with us. That's what verse 18 is getting at when it says that we have access to the Father through the Spirit. We've been given the Spirit to indwell us. And so Christ's blood is the means of bringing us near. But what is he bringing us near to? We see first that he, he brings us near to each other. On a horizontal level, to each other. Verse 14 reads, For he is our peace, who has made both groups one, and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. That is, Christ tore down the walls, keeping us from the inner parts of the temple. The walls that kept us in the outer courtyard, that divided out from those who could go into the outer courtyard and those who could go in, has been torn down. In doing so, Christ has made each of us equal. There are no regulations stipulating that some of us can get closer to God and some of us can't. Instead, each and every one of us is given equal access to God, which in turn creates equality among all of us, no matter your race, ethnicity, social status, economic well-being, or family situation. And then, to, to take it one step further, in verse 15, it reads that in Christ's flesh he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man or new humanity from the two resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. That is, all of that to say, Christ fulfilled the law perfectly as I stated before. He lived it perfectly so that now the old covenant is gone. He didn't just abolish it or get rid of it or throw it in the garbage. Instead, he, he fulfilled it. He, he lived it out perfectly so that it now has no effect on us. In doing so, there are now no longer those who are under the law and those who aren't. There are no ceremonial laws or civil laws that distinguish between groups of people. Instead, God has created a new humanity. 
He has done so by giving us the Spirit as our hearts are changed internally. This is no trivial thing, but changes how we view one another. Through Christ, we each have been shaped into something new. And something that both rises above and goes deeper than anything else that we use to separate us. Again, whether race, country of origin, career, military or civilian, family situation, whatever it is that we use as our main identity and what's divided us before has been pushed to the side or overwhelmed. Our identity has been thoroughly changed by Christ so that any previous distinctions are rendered powerless by making us into this same new race. Christ has destroyed any means of hostility that we might have with one another. It doesn't matter if you went to church before and were near, or you were running off doing whatever you wanted and were far. Christ has saved each of us equally and has made us into something new. So he brings us near to one another, and he also, second, brings us near to the Father. He says, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. I touched on this a little bit earlier, but it's worth coming back to. Christ has given us the Spirit of God. In John 16, we read that it was better for him to go away and to leave us with the Spirit than to leave us with himself. And why is that? It's because through the Spirit, we are each given personal nearness, personal access to the Father. We are brought near through Christ's blood, not just to each other, but to the Father. Before, people had to go to a place, to the temple. And it didn't matter what part of the world you lived in. You had to go to Jerusalem if you wanted to have access with the Father. And even then, we were on the outside looking in. You had to send in a representative. But now we have access to the Father whenever we want it. As the writer of Hebrews says in, in chapter 4, any time that we want, we step into the throne room of God, the Holy of Holies, the innermost part of the temple, to talk to Him, to tell Him how we feel, and to, and to make requests. We've gone from the very outside to the innermost part. And so Christ has brought us near to each other. He's brought us near to the Father through his blood. So what do we do from here? That's what he has done. Well, in verses 19 through 22, we read that we remain near. We remain near. So he's brought us near, and we remain near. We remain near to each other. Look at verses 19 through 20. He says, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. And so this verse says uh, four things for us really quick. First, it says we've been given citizenship. If you've ever spent time around someone who is trying to gain, who's trying to gain citizenship to the U.S., you know that it's a long and difficult process. I had the privilege of working with a lot of Afghans two summers ago uh, when a mass exodus came to the States. And so I got to witness this firsthand. Some came over through official U.S. evacuation, but there were other who found other means of coming over, legal means, but not necessarily the way that would connect them with all of the help that they needed. And so they had difficulty gaining the privileges that citizens have. They didn't get the easy access or the, just the help that is provided by the U.S. government. And they had to find other means of help and work. It's hard to be a foreigner or to be a stranger in a new land. And that's who we were. We're on the outside looking in, but God has given us citizenship in his kingdom. 
We've been given all the benefits and privileges that come with being a citizen of God's kingdom. There is no half citizen in the kingdom of God. Instead, God gives us each full citizenship and all the blessings and privileges that Christ has secured with it. And as a result of that, we have equal status with one another. None of us is below the other. It's our proximity to God that gives us equality with each other. None is closer and none is farther. There's no outer courtyard for some of us and holy of holies for some of us. Instead, each of us has been brought to the holy of holies together so that we each equally get to enjoy the nearness of God. And it's also our proximity to God It doesn't just give us equality with one another, but it gives us proximity to each other. Because we're not just citizens, but a family. That's what it means when it says that we are each members of God's household. We've been given a community. There's no distinction between each other anymore. Instead, we're all members of the new humanity that Christ has created, so that we're each given equal status and privilege. That community that was, I was discussing earlier that goes deeper than all the surface-level things that life gives us, we are now invited into that with each other. It's a step beyond citizenship, where we unite around just the same values and principles. Instead, there's a deeper love for one another, as God has given us to each other to live as a family ought to live. That means that even in this church, as we uh, live life with one another, we're to care for one another as a family would. We're to love one another and live in deep community with one another. We each have a responsibility to love one another as we get to enjoy the love that God has given us. So we've been given citizenship and equal status with one another as we get to experience uh, what it means to be a family and, and a member of God's household. We're also connected to the heritage of ancient Israel. I, I love this. I'm, I'm a history nerd. Um, and so to think that we have a deep, rich heritage that goes beyond even our, our smallest understanding. Uh, it blows my mind. We're now citizens of God's kingdom, and because we are part of his family, we're connected to all those who have been a part of his family. This means that the history of Abraham, of Moses, of David, and of ancient Israel is our personal history. Those that fled Egyptian slavery are our ancestors. We get to share in the joys that come with Isaiah's prophecy about Christ. We get to share in the hope of Nehemiah as he rebuilds Jerusalem. We get to rejoice with Israel as they awaited their Messiah. The heritage of God's people ranging from Adam and Eve to all around the world in the present day is rich and deep and is ours to claim. We don't swim in a shallow pool. Instead, our family tree is like the Amazon jungle where as you walk, the light is crowded out from the branches and the limbs that cover the sky. And so we're connected to ancient Israel, and then finally we're connected, and we find that Christ is what connects us to one another. It all hinges on Christ. Our connection with one another and to those who have gone before is all because Christ has secured it for every one of us. He is the cornerstone upon which all of this was built. The prophets preached that Christ was coming, and the apostles preached that Christ has come. Each of us is only given the family and citizenship that we are given because Christ has given it to us and continues to draw us into himself and to one another. And again, this is what leads to deep community. We have something that is 
eternal and unchanging that binds us all together. And so we remain near to each other, and we also remain near to God. Read verses 21 and 22. It says, In him, that is in Christ, the whole building, being put together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Remember, what was at the center of the city of Jerusalem? It was the temple. And what was the the purpose of the temple? It was a place where heaven met earth as God's presence dwelled there. It was a means of displaying God's presence to the rest of the world. And now we get the image that each of us, each of you that believes, are a building block for the new temple of God. And this is profound. Again, think about it. We were only allowed on the outer ring of the temple. We weren't allowed inside. And now we aren't just given access to a physical space. Instead, we replace the physical space as the place of God's presence. We've gone from looking in from the outside to being the very thing that we were looking at. This is two major implications for us. First and foremost, this signifies our nearness to God. No longer do we have to climb the mountain range to access God. No longer do we have a list of rules and regulations. No longer do we have to rely on one man to go before God for us. Instead, God dwells with us as his spirit resides in us. We have complete and total access to God 24-7. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You could be scrolling on your phone. You could be driving down the road. You could be sitting in an hour-long prayer session. You could be putting your kids to bed or taking the groceries inside. It does not matter where you are at or what posture you have. You have the presence of God with you at all times. God's Spirit, which came crashing down on Mount Sinai in an earthquake and fire, and which guided the Israelites as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night, is dwelling within you now. You can enjoy the presence of God at all times. So it signifies our, our nearness to God. And also, second, it means that we are now the display of God's glory and presence to the rest of the world. The temple was placed at the center of Jerusalem for a purpose. It was that which Jerusalem centered upon as it tried to expand to the outside world. It was the case throughout all of Israel's history. And now instead of one physical space where people have to come to, we are now the temple of God called to spread out throughout the world as we display God's glory and presence to the known world. And individually, this gives us purpose in our life. We who were once far off are now given the privilege of being the display of God's glory throughout the earth. Previously, we were without hope, but now we are the representation, the reflection of hope. God's temple reminded his people that his promises would still come true. And now, as, as he dwells with us, we get to remind people that God's promises are true and that he will come again. Now, if you aren't a Christian, I urge you today to give your life to Christ. You may feel hopeless. You may feel that you don't have a community. You may feel like you are far off. 
and that the mountain is insurmountable. And I tell you, it, it is insurmountable. But Christ came down to us. He came to dwell with us. He climbed down the mountain and lived the life that we were supposed to live. And by dying, he took on all that we did to separate ourselves from God. Whatever it is that causes you guilt or shame or misery, Christ took upon himself. He paid the price for it once and for all so that you don't have to. And Christ calls for you to trust him, to believe that he did die and that he came back to life taking on your sins. He calls for you to give him your life. He freely gave himself so that we could freely accept his forgiveness. Christ offers you freedom from the hopelessness that you feel. He offers you access to the promises and blessings of God. If you would just repent of your sins and turn from your life of pursuing your own pleasure and gain and give yourself to him. He will give you his spirit who will cause you to become new and to have hope and purpose in life. Would you give yourself to him today? If that's you, please find me after the service. I would love to talk with you, to pray with you, and to talk about the joy and hope that are found in Christ. Lord, we are thankful that you are a good God. We're thankful that you took it upon yourself to come down to us Lord, to find us who were far off. Lord, who uh, were not even close to coming to, to know you, Lord. We were like the sheep that wanders off and, and you chase after. We're like the prodigal son whom you go out to, to find and invite home. Lord, we're thankful for your goodness and your kindness to us in that. We pray, Lord, pray for those that are believers in here, Lord, that are Christians, that you would help us to live in our identity as your temple. That we would be able to experience your spirit dwelling within us, Lord. That we would live out of the privilege that we have in complete and total access to you at all times. Lord, I pray that we'd be a reflection of your glory and grace to the rest of the world, Lord. Both individually in our lives and as a church. As we seek to reach Fort Belvoir, Lord, and seek to reach the surrounding communities. Lord, for those in the room who uh, may have questions or, or don't exactly know whether they're a believer or not or just just aren't one lord i ask that you would help them to uh, just show them yourself lord help them to see that you are reaching out lord that you're the one who comes to us we don't have to go to you you're the one who comes to us and offers us salvation lord a relationship with you lord to know you and to experience your goodness and your grace and so spirit we ask that you continue to change us and mold us lord so we may reflect your glory and grace to the outside world Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.